After two and a bit years, we've made it here, our 100th episode of The Long Munch. And as with our previous milestone episodes, we're deviating slightly from our normal format to hear a fascinating story. Today, we're joined by world record breaker, Erkana Murray-Bartlett, who only a few weeks ago completed her mammoth effort running a marathon a day for 150 days in a row, smashing the previous world record, covering more than 6,300 kilometres from the northernmost tip of Australia to her hometown here in Melbourne. We discussed with Akana how she planned her nutrition for such an epic journey, how her plans then met the reality of her situation, and what she learned along the way. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask, sort of things that people are talking about out on their run or ride, in the coffee shop afterwards or jumping online to try and find answers for. So we'll take that question, break it down and invite a guest expert or athlete or coach to add their unique perspective. Today, it's episode 54, Nutrition for Tip to Toe, with our special guest, Akana Murray-Bartlett. But before we get to Akana, Steph, how are you going? Can you believe we made it to 100 episodes? I know. Scary, Al. Scary. Yeah, we've <laughs> done a good job. You've kept us ticking along very well. Keep us, um, yeah, keep us on task. So, yeah, very exciting. Now, just while we're on the topic of things that have been happening, a big shout out to our recent guest, Ellie Pashley, who I think was only two episodes ago, and she was talking with us then about trying to qualify for the World Cross Country Championships, which she then did, and she raced those a couple of weekends ago and actually finished top 20 in the world at that event in Bathurst. So that's a pretty incredible effort. She gave birth to her daughter, Tiggy, only about nine months ago now. Um, and she was able to hang in that second group on the course and then powered away from that group at the end to finish 19th in the end after a disqualification. And that was the highest placed Australian, I think, men's or women's in the, the main events, the elite events. Mm. So big congrats to Ellie. Yeah, well done. I saw her family were there and they had their shirts on and you alerted me to it, Al. It was a nasty one for the who was initially leading that race. Yes, that poor girl from I'm going to say Kenya. Kenya. I can't actually remember yeah. it was Kenya or Ethiopia yeah. um, because they finished, filled the top few places. But, um, mm. yeah, collapsed about mm. 20 metres from the finish line. And actually mm. then she was the one who got then disqualified, I think, for receiving outside assistance oh, I wondered after about the that event. When they... So, yeah, she managed to get up and then stumble across in fourth. But um, I mm-hmm. think she got assistance, so she got disqualified yep. for it, which mm. was a real shame. But mm. um, absolutely brutal course, hot mm. weather over the the weekend mm-hmm. um, with several of the, the junior races as well and mm. a lot of people collapsing with heat syncope along the course and mm. I think you saw online Steph mm. you know people were having you know rectal temperatures checked after the race in some cases by medical staff and having you know temperatures over 41 degrees mm. which is what you do see with those those shorter higher intensity events obviously you're not exposed to that temperature for as long um, but the temperature will get higher because it's a function of your work rate yeah yeah, scary. Mm. Yeah, we've got some exciting updates and announcements. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we've had our new website, thelongmunch.com, live since the beginning of the year now, but we haven't really done a lot with it yet. But that's set to change probably by the end of March, or I'm going to say probably into April now, just thinking what's happening over the next few weeks. Yeah. Um, I guess that a few things. Firstly, you'll find show notes there for the new episodes of the podcast moving forward, and that'll have you know links to articles that are mentioned and how to contact the various guests for social media and that sort of thing. And also, we are excited to announce that you'll soon be able to access a blog on there as well, which provides written summaries of the topics that we've previously covered on the podcast. Now, they're not all going to go up there in one big bang overnight. It's going to be a a bit of a drip feed, so we'll add new blogs there covering, obviously, topics that we've done in the past, um, you know, every week or two over the the next little while, which will be great as well. So Mm. people will be able to jump on and, and access all of that. And the other thing that we're also very excited to announce, Steph, is that you'll soon be able to become a Long Munch member. Woohoo! Yeah, so <laughs> this is something that we've been working on and thinking about for probably about six months now and uh, finally sort of come to fruition. So I guess it's a little bit like Patreon for those familiar with sort of Patreon pages for other podcasts and things like that, but a little bit different. It won't be through Patreon for a start. It'll just be straight through the website, but it will have quite a few sort of value benefits so you know some patreons is to sort of donate us some money so we can keep going we wanted to make sure that if people were providing cash that they're going to get value for that cash so there are going to be a, a range of sort of additional benefits for long munch members and that'll include first of all uh, an ebook which we're really excited about and sort of about three quarters of the way through at the moment building it and that provides comprehensive written articles on every one of the topics covered in the first two years of the podcast all in one ebook that you'll be able to put on your tablet or whatever and we're going to have a bunch of short videos as well that explain some of the key concepts in sports nutrition and particularly ones that relate to podcast topics that we've covered to date things like how to do a sweat test properly how to train your gut for an event how to grab a cup at an aid station without spilling it all over yourself, <laughs> as you discussed with Ellie a couple of weeks ago, Steph. So topics like that, that I think will be really handy to have some quick video guides on some of those things that are a little bit maybe harder to explain in an audio-only format or even in a written format uh, to be able to actually demonstrate those things I think will be really valuable for people. And then we'll have some very short summary podcasts, sort of two to three-minute ones that just cover the key points on some of the topics that we've covered to date as well and that'll obviously grow over time so yeah really looking forward to that and hopefully people will find that something that's that's worthwhile so we'll have more details on that as we get close to the date as i said it probably won't be till april now because we've got to finish the ebook and set up all the bits and pieces on the website that allow us to have the members section there and build all of that content so it's probably going to be another month or so i'd suspect The other thing that we're also looking at, um, and this is probably a bit further down the track, is looking at the feasibility of a premium level membership that provides all of those things I just described, but some additional resources that allow people to specifically answer the questions that we pose on the podcast, but in the context of their own individual or personal situation. So by being able to plugging a whole bunch of stuff in about your own specific situation it then spits out an answer that's personalized to you to help answer those various questions so we're going to take our time with this one we're going to gather some feedback via social media in terms of what people are going to find helpful or maybe not so helpful to really craft something that people will find really valuable 
and something that that's worth you know having a membership for so yeah that that'll be a bit of a work in progress but hopefully by sort of mid-year that'll be ready to go which will be really exciting awesome very exciting and just a, a reminder to listeners if they do have a question that you'd like answered on the podcast you can find us on social media at the long munch on facebook twitter and instagram Today's episode, though, Al, is? Yeah, so our episode is around nutrition for tip to toe with our special guest, Akana Murray-Bartlett. So most people in Australia in the running world have probably heard of Akana over the last three to six months or so. So she's a distance runner who in August 2022 left Cape York, which is the northernmost tip of Australia, completing a marathon every day to reach Melbourne. And she did that in mid-January of 2023. Now, along the way, she smashed the world record for the most consecutive marathons run by a female. And she also raised a ton of money for the Wilderness Society as well, which we'll hear a bit about in this interview. And obviously, any project like this, and you know, Steph and I, we've been involved in some of these projects working with athletes before, they're a mammoth logistical challenge. You know, that includes not just the planning out the routes and you know how you're going to sleep and all those sort of things but obviously the food and nutrition aspect is a big part of these as well because not only are you constantly preparing for running in and then recovering from a marathon but you're doing this usually living out of camper van or a trailer or something like that and at times in quite remote locations as well so there is quite a lot of practical limitations because of the fact that you you know you can constantly on the move from one place to the next it's not like you're going from home every day so obviously planning your nutrition is a big part of these kind of challenges and akana had an advantage she does have a degree in human nutrition and that gave her obviously a good foundation to work from but you know the specific challenges of consecutive days of running is something that was completely new to her she'd never done that before and that's not something that you you learn in your nutrition degree so yeah she still had a lot of research to do and and planning for an event like this so we'll talk to her about how that went uh, how the plans kind of started and then how that kind of changed over time as the reality of the situation sort of fed back to her and, and how she was able to adjust things along the way. Mm. Yep, yep. And we'll hear about her re- recovery now. She's, you know, running yet or she's relaxing and what uh, adventures she's got coming up as well. And just a final one before we get started with this, unfortunately we had a bit of a technical issue as we were linking up with Akana to make this recording. So at the last minute we had to switch from Riverside, which we normally use to record our podcasts with nice audio quality, back to Zoom, which anyone who listens to podcasts recorded with Zoom knows that the audio quality is nowhere near as good. So apologies about that, but uh, yeah, not much we could do about that on this occasion. So yeah, let's get stuck into it. Yep, let's do it. Akana, welcome to the Long Munch. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So I'm sure many of our runners would have been following and supporting your recent project, Tip to Toe, in which you ran 150 marathons in a row. So that's more than 6,330 kilometres for for everyone wondering. But for those that are not familiar, can you tell us about this, what I'd say is a bit of a superhuman 
project that you recently completed. So first of all, what is Tip to Toe? Where did you run from and to? Yeah, yeah. So Tip to Toe uh, was, I guess, my opportunity to challenge myself, to push my limits, to find where they were. Uh, It was a a childhood dream that was shelved uh, back when life got in the way and then I picked it back up in COVID and launched. So in August, I started in Cape York, so the very tip of Australia, and I ran one marathon every day back to back until I reached Melbourne mid-January. So it was 150 days, one marathon. We travelled south every day. And yeah, well, south-ish, uh, we did wind a lot. The um, the way the, the crow flies, it's only 3,800 Ks. But yeah, I, I partnered with the Wilderness Society and my passion and, and, and kind of objective was to not only run, but to also raise awareness for Australian at-risk wildlife and keeping wild places wild. So I did ensure that I ran through as many national parks, coastlines, green places uh, as possible just to really showcase the best Australia has to offer and really showcase the beauty of our backyard. Did you achieve your fundraising target? Yeah, yes, I had three goals that I wanted to achieve. The first being get to Melbourne no matter what, <laughs> uh, no matter how you get there. Uh, and, yes, we achieved that one. Uh, I My fundraising goal was $62,000, which when I was running, my maths was wrong. I thought it was only 6,200 Ks. It ended up being more than that. So my goal was for $10 per kilometre and I'm sitting at 132,000 right now. So well and truly doubled it, which was phenomenal. And then my third goal with this project was to break the the world, well, the Guinness World Record for the most amount of marathons ran by ran in a row by a female. It was held by a Scottish couple at 106. And so on December 4th in Newcastle, I broke it at 107. How the heck do you wake up each day and run a marathon? For 150 days straight. Yeah, it wasn't easy. <laughs> <laughs> I had I, I I had a lot of tips and tricks. My first was it was a non-negotiable decision to do it. There was no will I or won't I. Is this the day I stop? It was you're running uh, no matter what. Rain, hail, extreme heat, mostly extreme heat. So I broke it down. I didn't think about it as six thousand plus k's. I thought about it as one more day. I don't know, for anyone that's done a big endurance event or a marathon or, you know, a triathlon, the very first time you do it, you don't know what you're getting into. Like you don't know what's ahead of you. And I had that naive advantage of not knowing how many I could run. And so every day I was curious to just try and see what would happen if I ran one more. And I think that curiosity drove me further than, say, if I was to go out now and I know what I was in for, there's no way I would do it again. Um and yeah, so that was a big one. And I also leaned on community. So Australia was phenomenal. I, I put out on social media, hey team, I'm running through Newcastle, I'm running through the Cape, I'm running through Cairns today, is there anyone around? And everybody just rallied and showed me their local trails, showed me their favourite burger store, just kind of got behind me and, and ran sometimes a full marathon with me to, to keep me going when when the going got rough. Yeah, I remember... Um, we had on the podcast a year or so ago, Richard Bowles, who I worked with years mm. ago now, who ran the Bicentennial National Trail, which is sort of about three quarters of what you did. And uh, I remember him saying there was like a similar thing, like that sense of community. And there was one place where they gave 
they were donated like 10 kilos of sausages or something bizarre like that. And so they spent the next week like having 10 kilos of sausages shoved into this little bar fridge in their camper van and they were trying to just work out how to get rid of these sausages for about a week and a half. Did you have anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Like we, we we had people do everything along the set. Like we have a Cocoa Coast coconut water who delivered an entire pallet of coconut water for me to drink on the journey. <laughs> but, you know, that's a hard thing to carry. <laughs> Um, But a bit bit of shout out to Richard Bowles. It was actually his journey down that national trail that inspired me. And I thought, well, if I'm going to start in Cooktown, I may as well just start from the top. And I actually had a a wine with Richard and and I said, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to do it. Do you have any tips? And that was always the plan. And I'd ran a thousand kilometers down the Cape to Cooktown and I ticked off that first kind of leg and it was the plan to do the national trail but the way my run developed and turned into more of the world record attempt than this kind of solo expedition into the wilderness I couldn't I couldn't be so remote I was definitely sharing my story with the world I was trying to encourage people to run with me so I ended up changing my course slowly but his run was the the foundation of tip to toe so I have a lot of respect for him Mm. And it's probably just as well because I remember some of those areas like that national trail goes through private property in places yeah. and I remember there were some pretty angry farmers with shotguns and things. So it's probably <laughs> for the best that you avoided that. And we were doing a slightly different thing. So I, I don't think I would be able to do what I did if I was on my own solo for for extended periods of time. You know, the marathon I definitely did solo but then, you know, I'd be carrying I'd have a support bike with, you know, four or five litres of water with me. And I, because I was trying to go fast um, and every day and very strict guidelines around that marathon, I tried not to carry too much on my back to keep myself as injury free as possible. So, yeah, I was, I was lucky in the sense I was supported by food and water. Not to say I didn't forage for whatever I could find on numerous occasions, but yeah, I had a pretty, pretty cool mum who rode 1400 k's on a bike and yeah the community that came out and yeah gave me nutrition like I remember one time at Aubrey my partner was supposed to come on the bike and he had everyone's gels and like salt tabs and and cliff bars and 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 hydration but the first thing we did was we went down this single trail and he couldn't come so ended up like within 120 meters I'd lost all my nutrition for the day so then here a hundred days into my run I'm leaning on everyone else to borrow their gels and (laughs) salt so you know it went wrong as often as it went right i'd say (laughs) paces slash sherpas yeah (laughs) um am i right that before getting into running you were quite the competitive soccer player then i Mm. guess prior to the ultra running you had been competing in road marathons that's exactly it. And I wouldn't even say ultra marathons. I mean, I've only ran over 45 Ks once in my life and that was just to prepare for this. So I'm definitely maxed out at a marathon. Not to say I don't want to dip my toe into ultras now that I've got a bit of a base, but yeah, I, I spent my entire teenage years and early 20s playing soccer. So I've always been a competitive sport-based human. I've always, you know, thrived in sporting environments. It's been my entire like hobbies throughout my life I played hockey I played cricket I played basketball before I stopped growing uh yeah I've I've always been in that environment so running for me was a later sport because I loved team sports I was very much um I didn't realize back then that running was such a was such a team community event and now that I'm in it I know that was very naive and it actually is incredibly supportive and incredibly team-based but 
yeah, I, I, I didn't get into running until I was about 23, which in hindsight I think was good for me because I, I d- I'd already developed, I'd already had a good understanding of, I guess, nutrition and, and, and strength training and because and, and, I was studying, I have a master's of nutrition, so I was studying at the time. And I think it helped because to be the best runner you can be, it's sometimes a fine balance between pushing yourself to the limit, you know, um, exhausting a lot of your um, nutritional needs. You're, you're very much just always on edge when, you, when you're pushing yourself to you. So I think I did it at the right time for my preparation and mental strength and, yeah, knowledge base. Mm. Yep, yep. And so with the degree in human nutrition, can you tell us a bit about your work in the nutrition space? Yeah, yeah. So I, I've kind of got, I did nutrition because when I was in my early 20s, um, I'm 32 now, so it feels like a long time ago, I got this flu that um, flu that destroyed me. It hit my stomach and I was just, I just did not recover. I was getting, I became intolerant to everything. I went like full FODMAP. I was trying prebiotics, but they destroyed me. I tried probiotics. They weren't good. Like every, nothing worked. And, you know, I was losing too much weight and I was in a really bad health place. I was also trying to train. I was running at the time. So I was trying, I was training hard, but just had this, yeah, terrible stomach. I had to completely change my training routine to run before I'd eat anything. Cause the second I ate something, the rest of the day was a write-off. And I look back on my train, my food diaries back then. And they're just like, just so plain, you know, white rice, potatoes, because it's all I could eat. And it was, it was this three-year personal journey for me to get my health back that kind of was all based around nutrition that inspired me to then go on and study and help others. So that's kind of where it all began. And I was also working as a a PT at the time. So I had this kind of background in strength and training and nutrition. Um, And then I went on to do that for a a couple of years out of Caulfield. And then my lifestyle changed. I actually started working in the food industry, but not in nutrition. So I spent the next five years working in kind of food supply, food uh, manufacturing, uh, that kind of thing, research development, supply chain. And so that actual like clinical nutrition left but I always kind of incorporated it into my own life. And then, yeah, in 2021, I started planning tip to toe and then, yeah, did that. So my, my career has kind of gone all, all over the shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that happens to all of us, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. And so let, let's talk about nutrition for tip to toe now. And one of the things that Steph and I always talk about on the podcast is sort of, you know, planning. Like even if you're going to run like your first marathon or an ultra or something like that, like, planning ahead is is a really important part of that but obviously tip to toe takes that to a whole other level both in terms of obviously the nutritional challenge is quite different and and a bit more extreme but also there's a whole logistical practical side to that as well so how far out from a nutrition perspective did you start planning ahead for tip to toe it's interesting you say that because prior to tip to toe i had a very strict on myself whole foods healthy diet and I yeah I was very in control of it and so planning tip to toe my strategy was put on as much weight as possible stock up my yeah my my almost my body fat and my muscle so my whole philosophy to get to the start line of tip to toe was healthy and strong and Mm. injury resilient prior to that when I was racing marathons you'd get to the start line 
absolutely at your limit. You were you, you were your absolute thinnest version that was healthy, and you were you'd been training full on for twelve weeks with one week taper. And your goal was to get through that marathon as fast as possible, and then it didn't matter afterwards. You know that was mm. it. The, tip to toe was almost the exact opposite. My my philosophy was be healthy so then I can do it day in and day out. And I factored in weight loss whilst running. So I put on six kilos, um, which was hard, you know, for someone who watches their weight very, usually very thoroughly. Um, so yeah, I put on six kilos and I actually backed off my training and went my running training and went to the gym, focused on core strength, single leg stability, strength, stabilizer strength. So when I went to the start line, I actually felt really like, like heavy and, and a bit lethargic but I'm so glad I did because in my head I'd structured this nutrition plan while I was out there and I was still losing weight and I had to reevaluate it two weeks in and then add more to that, um, I guess, eating regime. And it ended up just being put in as much as you can when your body allows you to and that was the entire strategy behind it. And it was it just pretty much boiled down to that simplicity, like lots of sugar. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, fair enough. <laughs> And and obviously, when you start out on a project like this, like even if you have a background in nutrition, it's you know, that's not something that you learn. It's not something that's really mm-hmm. written about. There's very little literature on this kind of thing. So, where did you go to start sort of getting information about how to plan for something like this? Yeah, there isn't many people to lean on. Absolutely, um, <laughs> and I'm actually making it my mission to help anyone else now that wants to do something like this because it was an asset. I spoke to Richard, but he was very blasé. He was like, you'll be fine. Just eat as you go. Um, Doesn't sound like Richard. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. I just got given sausages. Um, Yeah. I I did reach out to a few people, but, yeah, I mean, nutrition is so tailored, right? It's Mm. everyone's so different. And I knew my background that I, I, I did have a relatively sensitive stomach. What's a surprised me was that I could actually eat just whatever I wanted like you you just become so hungry all of the time and so I guess for me it was trial and error I started the the journey eating a lot of you know fruit vegetables whole foods and when I realized I couldn't get enough calories in from that I switched to just whatever I could at any time and then you know if that if I woke up feeling a bit ill, I would then adjust it. So to be honest, I I just trialed an error error and I had 150 days. So, you know, what I was doing from day one to 10 was very different from day 20 to 30 and 40 to 50 and so on and so forth. And yeah, I learned a lot of lessons. I mean, don't drink a liter of orange juice. It'll come straight back up, you know, like (laughs) pancakes are good, but you know, curry's not, you know, you make all those decisions out there and you learn the hard way. Fair enough. And how does that, I mean, obviously that's a big contrast from how you would approach if you're doing like a one-off road marathon. Obviously and there's the planning stage and then there's the sort of adjustment on the go. Coming into it, did you sort of have that mindset that this is going to be completely different to my one-off road marathon and I need to approach it in a completely different way or were you sort of like that's what I know so I'll start with that and adjust it as, as I learn? I completely changed it. My 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 thought process and tip to toe was I never thought about the day I was in or the day be- behind me. I always thought about feeling for tomorrow. Every single day was about tomorrow. So I was always living a day ahead of myself. I had a couple of rules that I stuck by that I learned early on. I would never go more than 26 kilometers without eating something because I can do it. 
for a one-off marathon, but then mm. the next day I would feel depleted. So that was a clear rule. I would have two hydrolytes without fail every day. That was a clear rule. And I would overconsume knowing that I would need it for tomorrow. Okay, you're not hungry now. You'll get through it now. But that's not how tomorrow, uh, it won't help tomorrow. So, yeah, it was always, I was always thinking about recovery, not immediate needs. That was always in my head. And I think that's why, to be honest with you, I was so successful because everybody asks me about recovery and the truth is I couldn't recover out there how I planned to. I'd plan to stretch every day, foam roll every day. But the second I would roll out a foam a mat, I would get inundated with mosquitoes, sandflies, midges, you know, ants, because I was camping. So I didn't. I didn't stretch. You know, I was given recovery boots, but I didn't have power, so I couldn't use them. The water wasn't cold enough to be an ice bath up there. It was the Cape and it was the middle of summer. It was hotter. It was my bath. So I didn't have any of these normal recovery techniques. So the only pillars I lent on were food and hydration and sleep. And and they were became these kind of absolute ultimate pillars that I would stand behind for everything. And I think to be honest with you, it's the success the reason uh, I was as successful. That mm. and my running technique, I think, be, being relatively injury-free. So, yeah, running technique, food and sleep were the, were the, thing, the only things that, that got me to the finish line. Yep, yep, no, that makes sense. And did you sort of sit down beforehand and try and work out, you know, this is how many calories I think I'm going to need or did you plan it in terms of carbs or protein or was it just sort of eat as much as I can and see how my weight goes and then adjust as I need to? Yeah, yeah. I actually didn't know I was losing weight until I looked at a video of the day that I started, maybe three months in, and I was like, oh, I've lost way too much weight because um, you don't notice it day after day. Mm. And so three months in, I then readjusted completely because I was feeling fine. I'd, I'd never, I mean, you'd have these lulls in energy, but I'm fairly sure that would be expected. I didn't have any energy deficit. And yeah, I saw this video and I thought, oh, absolutely, that's not good enough. So I then consumed Pretty much I'd supplemented my relatively healthy meals I was having with ice cream and, you know, I was drinking creamy soda and pizza and things I would never touch. I was eating a lot of chocolate because I couldn't get enough calories in just eating the way I wanted to eat. I'd, and, and that was unusual for me, just relying on a box of shapes and, you know, a lot of additional things that I obviously needed. I was taking a vitamin supplement, uh, magnesium at night, iron, B, complex uh what else not many just and and that that pretty much saw me through mm. yeah mm. cool and, and obviously like in terms of the actual nutrition while you're running it's obviously not a race in the traditional sense but obviously you have to complete a certain distance each day and, and obviously the course is quite different there's a lot of off-road stuff probably a lot more hilly than your traditional kind of road marathon course as well. Um, for those who are wondering, and I guess this kind of translates into what you do while you're running from a nutrition and hydration point of view, what sort of pace were you able to maintain for most of those type days and how does that compare to how you would run a, a one-off road marathon? Well, my overall pace for the entire thing was 5 minutes 59, so just under 6, but that includes all the hikes, all the walks, all the stopping and eating. So to be honest... Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I think my actual running pace, because the way I did it is I would run and then I would take on nutrition and I would walk for a K and it just because I found that if I stopped, I, I struggled to get going again. So I just constantly moved. 
And there was also parts where people would join me and they couldn't run, so I would hike with them. And so I was very much sometimes wasn't in control of my pace. So when I was running just me, it would be between 5.15 and 5.40 pace. And that, yeah, the slower overall pace factored in all my stops because I very rarely stopped my Garmin. It was part of the rules that I wasn't allowed to. And, yeah, I mean, that's a lot slower than what a marathon would be before this. I mean, I, I think I would run the last 10 marathons before this. My, my pace was between 2 hours 50 and 2 hours 55, so I was very much always in that window. So, you know, it's an hour and 10 minutes slower. Mm. Uh, and in those marathons, I'd pretty much – nailed like all I needed and this is down to a tea I'd take one gel at 15 k's one gel at 24 k's one gel at 32 k's and a hydrolyte and that's me that was my race plan it was to a tea out on the road I would be eating a bowl of pasta halfway through I would be eating cliff bars you know and I would do a similar structure I'd eat it like 90 minutes then two and a half hours and then three and a half hours and then that would see me home. So it was a lot more food, a lot more hydration and more ma- like more macro foods. To be honest with you, I didn't start having gels until I reached Victoria, uh, so, you know, 120 days in, and that is because my running friends started, started coming out and joining me and they're all very fast. So my marathons dramatically increased in the last 30 um, and so they actually started being treated more like marathons and you know we wouldn't stop we would consume gels on the run and that was a whole different mental battle that was but um yeah so they were treated more like adventures and expeditions with 30 to go they turned into actual like proper marathons yeah yeah no that makes sense now obviously one of the big things in any of these kind of projects is the support crew you know who's with you how they're able to you know or how you're able to access them at various points while you're running and then obviously when you're uh, not running for the rest of the day as well. So tell us a little bit about the setup you had with support crew. Who'd you have there with you? What sort of facilities or um, equipment or resources did you have available? Yeah, it was a very small team. So from day one to 150 was my partner. Uh, He is a videographer, so the one that was creating all the content that went through socials, I mean, together, he... Did a, did a little bit of running, not much, but his, he had a full-time job himself. So we had this off-road track about camper trailer. So every day we would, well, I would start running, he would pack it up, drive to the next destination 40 or 50 kilometres south, hand me a bottle of water as it go past me and then set up camp and make sure that lunch was cooked and then he would help with logistics of the next day, helping organise the community part of it, you know, reaching out to the schools I was visiting. So he had a very logistics filming editing, camping role. My, I had my mum and my dad from Cape to Townsville, so 1,400 Ks. Mum rode most of it, I would say. It was her own personal kind of expedition. She carried water and food and also gave my partner a break from having to make sure I was okay, particularly in the remote areas. You definitely needed at least one other person because there was no cell reception. Uh, there was just, you know, it was quite, I don't know, and they were all four-wheel drive tracks, so um, having someone if the car broke down, and that was my dad, so he would not only help us when our car broke down, but everyone in the Cape whose car broke down, he was sort of the travelling mechanic. <laughs> um, and that's something I was really, I guess, stoked that he came because he ta- took his long service leave and, you know, he didn't have to take that much time out of his, you know, career to come and help me out. But, 
Yeah, that was one of the weaknesses that I was scared of where I lent on the help of him because I'm not very good with cars or, you know, I don't know, didn't know what an Anderson plug was or like an inverter before any of this. And I feel like I'm a proper four-wheel driver now. But um, he they came for six weeks. And then to be honest, it was, yeah, just my partner and I, we were such a skeleton team. And that was strategic because I'm a bit of, one of my weaknesses plus strengths is I'm a bit of a people pleaser. So when I found when friends would come in, it would take a lot of energy from me to make sure I was constantly making sure everyone else was okay. And I've always felt just guilty that they'd come so far just for me. And I um, really struggled with that a little bit. So I had a few friends come and fly in and join me and definitely towards Melbourne, more and more friends would, but yeah, they mostly just came for the running component rather than full on staying with the, with the traveling camper. Mm, yeah. And and obviously one of the things when you're traveling with a camper is, you know, you've got relatively limited cooking facilities, depending on how mm-hmm. fancy your camper is. Do you want to tell me a bit about your, your setup in terms of how you were able to kind of store and prepare food along the way? Because obviously that's a big part that will potentially limits what you can achieve from a food and nutrition point of view. Yeah, it actually was surprisingly sophisticated. So shout out to Track about it. it had a huge fridge. Uh, it had a massive storage component. I didn't even get through all of the food that I packed. Um, it was all just like oats and rice. And But in saying that, the cooking facilities were stovetop. So as much as we were very versatile on the stovetop, I was very much craving baked food and, you know, pizza by the time I got to Melbourne. But, yeah, we had a pretty good rotating diet of like, yeah, curry and, and pasta and stir fries and we made soup regularly and, yeah, it was actually surprisingly good. Yeah, we had a sink with running water that we would fill up when we were in a town and it would last us for a couple of days. Where I didn't have facilities was a shower. It did have a shower on it, but it uses it used a lot of water. So we would save that for drinking because I was absolutely like destroying water. I was going through mm-hmm. so much. So I would then use the the rivers and the waterfalls and whatnot to clean myself. But yeah, no, I mean, we took up a lot of we took up a lot of dried goods and I didn't think I would. The thing that surprised me the most was how much vegetables I was able to eat. I was worried that I would be living off, you know, uh, like pies from servos and, you know, just rice. But, yeah, we, we ended up being able to get more vegetables than, than I thought we would up, up there. But you just pay for them. Like I think I paid $12 for a broccoli head at one day or something. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And so it sounds like there was part of the way where people were able to kind of stop by the side of the road and hand you food as you went at other sections where you'd have to kind of be a bit more self-sufficient mm-hmm. for the, the 42Ks and pretty much carry all the nutrition that you needed for that period of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there'd be a there'd be runs where I wouldn't have any support and I'd have to carry everything on my back. Those days I pushed it a little bit more. I lived off lo- a lot less, mostly because it's so heavy to carry that much water. Mm. Yeah, I think there was a marathon or two where I would would have only drank six hundred mil or something along those lines. And keep in mind, I think the lowest temperature was like twenty five degrees. I was always hot. Like it was thirty eight degrees for large portions of it. So water was a big factor. I definitely would have done a large chunk of marathons, just me. But in saying that also, when you run through a town, all I needed was a, a card in my in my back and I could just buy things as I went. And they have bubblers as well. So I, I very much was looking out for bubblers. People, but because I was wearing my same, I guess, quite distinctive kit the whole way, a lot of people stopped and handed me 
you know, filled up my water bottle or handed me some sort of orange or, or piece of fruit, which was just always so humbling. And I remember at the Cape, there's a volunteer crew called, I think it's Tangalora Blue. They go and they clean up beaches. They knew I was running south and they stopped and they gave me this whole package of, you know, vitamins and, and avocados and bananas. And yeah, I, I got looked after. It was very, very great. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> and um, so... I guess just having a look a little bit about the structure of your day during the run, did you have a set routine for meals and kind of like the time of day you'd do your run and then recovery time? Yeah, my run was always first thing to beat the heat and they started very early and and I would have a sleep in if I knew it was forecast to rain just to use that. But the later in the day I would start running, the less recovery I found I got because that next day I would start early again. So there was two midday slash afternoon runs, but the rest would have been before 6 a.m. And that was strategic, again, from the heat. So it would be up at about 4.35, I would have a big bowl of cereal and banana and a coffee. Um, I never let it settle. I just hit the road and I took the first kind of three Ks to digest plus, you know, warm my body up. And then I would usually finish late morning, mid-morning to late morning because just to, just to put it like to context, I wasn't always just running. There was often filming involved. There was often community visits and, and there was a lot going on. So even though my run would take me about four hours, I was often five or six hours out there before I would come back to base. And then it would be, yeah, immediately lunch, like immediately. I always tried to eat lunch within the first hour, half an hour of finishing a marathon. And then the afternoons changed every single day. Some days there were school visits. Some days I would go and see wildlife shelters or like local um, wilderness society, volunteer groups, everything. Every day had something on. We looked back on it and I had seven days out of 150 where I didn't have something planned in the afternoon. And on those days I had to catch up on like emails and sponsor requirements. So yeah, it was in hindsight so full on and then the afternoon would usually be social, like so we were creating reels and, and content so the afternoon would be editing and filming and then dinner would be, you know, between six and eight depending on how busy we were and then pretty much straight to bed. I was usually falling asleep between 8.30 and 9.30 to then get back up at 4.30 or 5. Yeah, so you mentioned it a little bit before, you know, often for kind of multi-month projects like this, your sports nutrition is also your everyday mm. nutrition. So it needs to provide, you know, enough iron, calcium, fibre, et cetera. And considering you just mentioned that you were doing this more plant-based way of eating, this was obviously something you thought about. So what did you kind of consider there? It sounds like you were adding on supplements um, mm. to try and make sure you were not lacking in those vitamins and minerals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So protein, I was always, I'm always big on protein. I think a lot of us under-consume protein um, and it's so important for, you know, everything, hormone balance, muscle development, recovery. So coming from a non-plant-based background, I was like very worried um, and overcompensated. So every meal, breakfast was like full of nuts. Dinner was either like a lentil pasta or a chickpea curry or a tempeh. You know, I would add 
probably, you know, more than I would normally eat if it was meat in, 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 a, in a plant-based alternative. And then, yeah, for supplements, I prefer almost to individually supplement so I know what I've taken. It's just something, it's just who I am. I was taking them very regularly, not too much, but there was this one occasion where, so in the camper trailer we had drawers that came out and pushed in depending on whether we were setting up or packing down. And on the other side were my supplements and my massage gun and my foam roller. And one day the drawers came out and they got stuck and it took us two weeks to find a handyman to be or longer, three weeks to push the drawer back in so I could get to my supplements. And that, that was that was hard because like, I hear in my mind, you know, you're ticking over, you're like, I haven't had anything for so long, I'm so depleted. But it would have been fine. But um, yes. Yeah, that was that was a worrying period of time. And yeah, yeah, I was so kind of I was actually really proud of the blood results afterwards because knowing that that's what my background and my and my field of expertise is in, I thought, all right, well, this is the perfect opportunity to trial it all. And I feel really confident going into any other multi-day events now that I know what to do. It's definitely something I think I mastered over 150 days and yeah, I didn't have all that much stomach upset. I got to the point where I could consume the right amount of foods immediately after I never got sick. I didn't get sick once. I didn't get, yeah, anything like, to be honest, I, I did it. And that was, that was the cool thing about it is I, I, I was through trial and error able to, to get there and, and I'm, I'm healthy. And the tiredness now I know is just my body recovering. It was to be expected. I am still keeping up almost a high calorie intake while I recover more than I probably would need. And I'm also still supplementing. Yeah. I'm only a month out. And I've spoken to Sean Bell and Ned Brockman and Timmy Franklin, who are all running, and it t- it's taken them up to six months to feel better. So I'm not putting any pressure on myself. I'm just I have cut out the shapes and the creamy soda and the pe- and, and and all that stuff. The not the ice cream, but everything else is cut out. And I'm just trying to yeah slowly build myself back up because yeah I, I can't wait to start running again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, it sounds like you didn't really use scales much, like in terms of to check like your weight changes on a day-to-day basis, or you kind of just kind of did that as how you felt. And like you said, then you looked back and got a bit of a shock when you saw a photo. Yeah. Yeah. I I didn't have any access to scales. I didn't have a gym. There was, I didn't take any. Yeah. I, I, I could tell because people when I would see them a few months later, but, oh, you've lost weight. But in saying that, I did deliberately put on weight to do this. So mm. I did know that where I started was heavier than I needed to be. So I, I was I was comfortable in my mind that I was okay. And mm. I and I have been like a lower weight than I was before. And I knew that if I started to look at that, like that, that was too much. So mm. I did know just looking at myself and also how I felt, you know, and, and every kind of went in a routine where I would have a fast marathon, and then I would feel pretty tired the next day and then I would have an okay marathon. So it went fast, slow, okay, fast. And as long as I was rotating through that, I knew that I was okay. If I had like three or four bad ones in a row, maybe I would have reevaluated and yeah. said, okay, something's lacking. But yeah, thankfully, I, I mean, I was pretty, like I said, anal in making sure I'd over, over consumed. So it, was, it wasn't something I would forget about and pick up again. It was constantly a focus of mine. Yeah, yep. And um, obviously with these types of events, you get flavour fatigue. Um, mm-hmm. It's probably where the barbecue shapes and those types of things came out. So, yeah, did you get sick of any types of foods or drinks along the way that maybe surprised you? Yeah, well, I was sponsored by Cliff Bar and I love Cliff Bars, but I'm going to be honest, I, I've had enough Cliff Bars now <laughs> forever. <laughs> 
because <laughs> every- yeah <laughs> no but I'm super grateful um but yeah I would have a cliff bar every like 20k and yeah the whole everything about them the texture the flavor I just need a break I got a little bit over bananas which is a shame because my favorite fruit mm-hmm. um and just yeah like I said we had the same pasta and curry over and over so <laughs> and fried rice so I can have a little break but absolutely I didn't get sick of gels which I thought I would yeah my dentist wishes I would but um <laughs> no they were okay but yeah no just cliff bars is the one that stands out <laughs> <laughs> and um and how was your appetite because most people probably think that it would be huge given the amount of energy you kind of burning through but it it's not always the the case for for some people. Yeah, it it wasn't the case for me. I mean, I, it would come ravenously, and you know, my partner said, you know, you get scary when you get that hungry, and you know, I would I would just start crying if the food took seven minutes longer than it needed to. So it came in waves of being the only thing I thought about, and then I just wouldn't get hungry, but. When I just wasn't hungry, I would just snack. I would just have like small things or I would, that's when, that's when I would open bags of things that I liked. Like that's when I would open the bag of shapes because if I was hungry, I would eat anything and I would choose something healthy. But if I wasn't hungry, I was like, oh, I'll just get an ice cream or I'll get something that I enjoy eating. But yeah, I got very used to feeling overly full. So I, it's so weird. It's a weird feeling. You go to bed and you feel like unwell, but then you wake up starving. So you just know you're using it up. It's it's a bizarre overconsumption that you that you wouldn't want to do. Like you do get, and you also get almost eating fatigue. You get the first three months was like this is awesome. I can eat literally anything I want, and then fast forward two months later, you're like, oh, I'm so I actually am, I'm tired of just always eating and always feeling full and feeling kind of bloated and a little bit gross. Mm, yep. <laughs> I got that feeling just doing like a six-day multi-stage mm. race, so I have no idea how you did it, you know, <laughs> 150 days. And when you said, like, I remember when I did this Trans Rockies run, the magic kind of wore off for me after three days. So mm. for you to do 150 days, that's remarkable. So it sounds like you didn't really experience any massive gut symptoms while you were running, which is kind of unusual for what it sounds like for you when you used to be Mm -hmm. getting them on a maybe a daily occurrence. Absolutely. I was so impressed. And I think in hindsight, the situation, my whole life situation back then, not only was I recovering from this flu, but I, I had bitten off more than I could chew. So I was all also stressed and I was probably, you know, suffering from some chronic inflammation and, and everything. And yeah, I and I and I've never been out of since then eat eat garlic or onion or there's still some some high fodmaps that I have to avoid and so I found I could eat literally anything on the road and I think it was a combination of the freedom of just I didn't have a lot of stress like yes physical stress absolutely but like my my mental stress was my whole objective for today is to finish this marathon and I and I love running it's like in my DNA I love being outside and that was never lost on me, the fact that I was, you know, doing something that I dreamt of, that I was exploring new places, that I was seeing parts of Australia that, you know, not many people have seen on foot, which, you know, no one really gets the opportunity to do. And that never was lost. So I think my mindset was really positive and it did allow me to, because my stomach is very much wired to my stress levels. And so I think the low stress out there, yeah, definitely helped me be able to eat a lot more. 
and it's something that I've definitely taken into the rest of my life if I if I do find myself going back into that feeling of not being able to digest food, not feeling energetic. I definitely look at my life as a, as a bigger picture and say, okay, well, what else is going on that could be potentially causing this? Yep. No, it makes sense. Mm. Okay. And so you've had a few weeks now, obviously, to reflect and maybe not completely process, but hopefully partially process everything that's happened. I guess just sticking on the nutrition side of things, what's sort of been the biggest learnings that have come out of this from you from a nutrition point of view or things that you would pass on to someone else who might be thinking about attempting something similar to, to what you've done? Yeah, I definitely was impressed that you can, not that I always thought you could be do it plant-based, but the fact that I did such a, a huge thing plant-based, I was very much that was a big learning curve for me and just how to do it because I had to learn, you know, I had to learn every aspect of the vegetarian plant-based diet to, to do it. So I feel very confident now in that space. Um, I I definitely think overconsumption was was the answer. You know, you think you're eating enough, you're really not. You know, it's it's you almost need to overdo it to, to balance out the energy you're expending just recovering as well. Um, they're probably my two biggest tips and and just kind of, I really tried to vary my diet to make sure I was getting in um, a lot of, you know, a lot of nutrients and minerals that I otherwise might be lacking. So I, I, I had this kind of challenge. I set my partner that every time we do a shop, I would try and choose five or six new things put into the shopping trolley. So that was a big one. And learning to live within your, like, a cooking ability was, was a cool thing for me as well. So managing to learn to make all these different wok fried meals Yep. I'm an expert. <laughs> and were you eating plant-based before this or was that something that you deliberately set for this challenge? Um, I've been, so I've been with my partner for two years. So I was eating relatively plant-based for a year before and always like I would say 80% anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but I had always still, yeah, eaten like 20% meat. So, yeah, I completely cut it out for this, which, yeah, it did worry me a little bit because I, I understood that my needs were higher. Yeah, and I'm glad I did it. And and going forwards, I'm still eating 99% plant-based. I'm not like completely, but one thing I do eat a lot of is oysters. Yeah, I, I'm reintroducing a little bit of seafood, but still relatively, I would say 99%. Yeah. yeah, okay. And more broadly, what has sort of your biggest takeaways been having had, what, three, four weeks now to reflect on the whole thing? On everything? Like what mm. are my major... Like, um. Biggest takeaways, I guess the, the predominant one is that you just don't know what you're capable of until you push your limits. And I still don't know what mine are. I mean, I, I, I managed to do this. It, it definitely took a lot out of me, but, you know, could I have gone further? You know, I didn't, I didn't quit. So I am curious to push that ceiling to see what else I've got in me. So it's definitely sparked a curiosity. I've also realized that I've stopped worrying so much about what people think. I think when you put your art into the world, you, you open yourself up to a lot of criticism. Mm -hmm. And I think experiencing that has almost made me stronger. And it's almost like I've decided that I just don't care if people, if you want to criticize, that's okay. I'm still going to do what I love and I'm still going to talk about what I'm passionate about. And, you know, it's, and, and I found myself acting and doing things now that prior to tip to toe, I would look at and think about, but not do. 
And yep. so I've definitely turned into a doer, which is something I'm so proud of. So they're probably my two biggest takeaways is you were capable of so much more than you think you are. Because when I started doing this, I didn't know I could run three marathons back to back, let alone 100, let alone 150. It's, okay. it's, it's, it's such a powerful thing to do rather than just to think and dream of. Yeah. Awesome. All right, well, I'm going to hand over to Steph now, and she's going to finish us off with our quick little bonus round. Awesome. Yep. So we've got five questions to learn a little bit more about you. So what's the first thing you looked forward to after completing Tip to Toe? Going out for breakfast in a cafe and having a latte. (laughs) (laughs) Typical Mel Bernie. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that silly? Uh, and favorite piece of advice or motto that you found maybe helped you get through you can have everything you want in life you just can't have it all at once because I always try and do everything at once and I never space them out so I don't know I take that advice into into absolutely everything I do (laughs) good one and um (laughs) is there a sport you'd love to try but you've never had the chance Dancing. I have had the chance and I'm terrible at it, but I really want to like, I love watching people dance. So I've just never had the courage to do dancing lessons. Maybe that's one of the things I'll act on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Is this like hip hop dancing or ballroom dancing? I'm so uncoordinated. I'd take any, any (laughs) dancing. (laughs) Make it your own. Um, (laughs) Have you already started thinking about a new project or adventure or you're just trying to kind of get back into society for a while first? Well, okay, so based on that first advice, you can have everything in life that you want, just not all at once. I want to do a lot right now, so I'm trying to take my own advice and recover and I have the time to do them all. I have. I've thought of lots, (laughs) too many. I do know I want to collaborate next, so I want to do something with I met a lot of people through this opportunity that I would love to connect with and potentially do something with them. Awesome. Finally, can people still support your fundraising effort for the Wilderness Society? And if so, how do they get on board? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to keep it open for another couple of weeks just because I've got kind of interviews and media from overseas now that's starting to roll in so I, I mean anything I can do for the Wilderness Society to keep it open there's no there's no like loss in that mm-hmm. um so the link to the donation page the GoFundMe page is on my website but also on my social media and it's exactly the same it's tip to toe 2022 in both and yeah we'll, we'll keep it open hopefully get it a little bit higher awesome yeah yeah um and we'll put that on our social media as well so thank you so much for sparing your time and some of your sleeping time as well <laughs> to, to jump on board with us. And, yeah, I know it's going to inspire a lot of our, our listeners to, yeah, like don't just think about maybe a race or event and they think it's, you know, too scary or impossible. Perhaps just get out and, and give it a go. Anything you wanted to add? Yeah, you'll surprise yourself. You might just get there. <laughs> awesome. And eat a lot of food along the way. <laughs> and eat whatever you want along the way. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks. That was awesome. Wow. Amazing. Um, so Akana's schedule is what 
what she got planned out. Yeah, so obviously when we had that chat to her a couple of weeks ago, she hadn't kind of figured that out. And I think talking to her off air, she was literally sitting down that day to kind of work it out. And she's put a post on Instagram, I think a few days ago now, saying that she's got a few events on the schedule for this year now. So she's going to do the Warwood and Trail Fest over the Labor Day weekend here in Victoria in March. So that's March 11 to 13. Then she's off to Singapore for the Sundown Marathon, which is in sort of late May. And then in July, she's going to go up to the Gold Coast and do the double there. So the half marathon on the Saturday and the marathon on the Sunday as well. So, yeah, she hasn't uh, hasn't spent too much time recovering. Relaxing. She's back on the horse. Mm, yeah, yeah, yep. And going into some humidity in Singapore. Mm. Yeah, bit of fun. So we have, I reckon, a really relevant question I mean all our questions are are relevant now of course but I think a lot of our listeners can sometimes get confused with this question so what are we answering next yeah so our next episode will be obviously 101st but it's episode 55a and our question is should I try and eat like the pros with our guest associate professor Greg Cox from Bond University now this question actually arose from a listener Ben Parker who is a sports dietitian up on the Gold Coast where Greg lives as well. Uh, And it came about because Greg and I had run a masterclass on endurance sports nutrition for sports dietitians late last year. And afterwards, Ben sort of contacted us on Instagram and said, oh, that was great. It'd be great if you could do a summary of the, the workshop that you did on the podcast. And we thought, well, the workshop was obviously designed for sports dietitians, not for athletes, mm. but also, you know, some of the topics in that workshop we have actually covered in specific episodes before, mm. um, sort of around underfueling and around things like the sodium stuff that that we talked about, that, that research that I'd done sort of towards the end of last year as well. So I sort of picked out one of the topics from that that I don't think we've really covered in detail in the podcast. We've kind of alluded to it in places, but I think is a really relevant one. And that's, I guess, how nutritional needs for runners, cyclists and triathletes vary depending on whether, you know, you're just starting out, you're a beginner, you're maybe a recreational or a master's athlete, or you're a professional athlete because those situations are very different. And, you know, Greg has done a lot of work, particularly at the elite end with Triathlon Australia over almost 20 years. He doesn't work for them anymore, but uh, worked with them from sort of the early 2000s right up until after the the Tokyo Games. So we're going to talk to him, I guess, a lot about what makes an elite athlete elite and what does that do to their nutritional needs And also then looking at, okay, what are the implications of that for recreational athletes? What aspects of, you know, what the pros do is worth looking at and considering and what things are completely irrelevant just because they're so different in their training or their caliber of fitness and their ability to use energy and all that kind of stuff that actually doing that would be a disservice to a recreational athlete. Because, you know, we have sports nutrition guidelines, but they generally don't break out for different groups of athletes or different levels of athletes. It's sort of a generic bunch of guidelines. And so are those guidelines designed more for the elites or are they designed more at the recreational end? Uh, And how do we need to, I guess, maybe interpret them differently for those two situations? Mm, Yep, yep. Excellent. Looking forward to that one coming up. And just a reminder that if our listeners do have a question that they would like answered on the podcast, they can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And thank you to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. 
and Spotify. We really appreciate it. And just remember also that there's now 54 episodes that we've already answered questions to. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. But you may like to go back and check out the catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there going back to November 2020. So if you do want to be notified every time that a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or racing, and you've already heard it on the podcast, you might like to let them know. And um, finally, a massive thank you to everyone who's supported us with the first 100 episodes of The Long Munch. We wouldn't still be here doing it if we didn't enjoy it and if we didn't have the support of those who listen each fortnight. So, yeah, please keep sending your questions through. We love getting feedback, whether it's, you know, positive or you want to give us some constructive feedback. We, we would love to hear that too because we are learning. But otherwise, we will love and leave you and we'll see you soon talking to Greg. Will do. See you later, everyone.